Let's bow together. Father, thank you for this opportunity you've given us today to come together as your, your son's body, the church, to exalt you, to praise you, to declare your excellencies, to, to worship you. Father, I thank you for your son who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. And uh, Lord, we are so thankful for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. May we praise you and honor you all the days of our life. And Father, as we look into your word today, we pray that you would, by your spirit, uh, enlighten us, that you would convict us, that you would correct us and train us, that we would be uh, your people, changed, made more like Christ. Thank you for this time we have together. May you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we live in a very divided world. There are racial divisions, cultural divisions, national divisions. What about our country? We have a lot of the same things. We have political divisions. We have all kinds of divisions. And those divisions are not simply within the, the national sphere. We have them in, uh, even within our families, other places where we have divisions between uh, family members, whatever it might be. We live in a divided world. Now, the one place that shouldn't be divided is the church. We should be in unity. We should be like-minded. We should be thinking the same thing. But yet, we find often at times we are not in unity in, with one another. So with that in mind, how can we as the body of Christ uh, maintain the unity that the Spirit of God produces uh, in our hearts? That's what we're going to look at today as we continue our look in the book of Philippians. Would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2? And we're going to be looking at the first two verses of a larger portion. So keep that in mind. Um, Even though we're looking at verses 1 and 2, this portion moves on through uh, towards the middle of the chapter. But we're looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and as we've been studying the book of Philippians, we know that Acts 16 records the founding of the Philippian church around 52 AD, where we have the first European converts, Lydia, converts, Lydia and her family, and uh, the Philippian jailer and his household. And we have uh, this, this wonderful church being born as the word of God worked in the hearts of those, as the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul shared the word with them, Paul and Silas. Now, the Apostle Paul, about 10 years later, is in Rome. He is under house arrest for preaching the gospel. And this is one of his four prison epistles, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, Philemon. Now, as we've looked at it so far, I hope we've been encouraged. I hope we've been encouraged by Paul's thankfulness for these Philippians. He was thankful for God's past work in them, and he was confident that God would complete that work that he started And the Apostle Paul prayed for them, the Apostle Paul prayed for them that their love would abound for one another, that it would abound in true knowledge and real discernment, so that they would be able, by the Spirit of God, to make right choices that would ultimately glorify God. And then we saw the Apostle Paul share his circumstances, that although he was in prison, the gospel was not imprisoned, and that all the events around his life he was seeing how god was being magnified through the through the expansion of the word going out in the midst of what some would say would have been a restriction and the apostle paul understood in his situation that he could die 
that as he goes before Caesar, they could say this is it, or he might live. And so we saw the mindset of the Apostle Paul who desires to magnify Christ. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. If he was to die, that would be gain. It's far better. But to live is very important and is much needed for the Philippians, he shared. And he was confident in the Lord that he would remain on for their benefit. See, the Apostle Paul is all about magnifying Christ using the gifts that he had been given to build up the body of Christ, that the body of Christ would magnify the Lord. And then we saw last week the Apostle Paul transfers from his circumstances to the circumstances of the Philippians, encouraging them in the same mindset in the midst of opposition to the truth, opposition to uh, walking in Christ. Remember, we saw that they were exhorted by the Apostle Paul last week to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ as heavenly citizens to be different in that sense. And that within that they should stand firm in the truth and strive together for the truth and not be afraid of those who are ultimately opposed to them, but opposed to the truth. And we saw that within that, when we with one spirit stand against the opposition, when we strive together for the faith of the gospel, we're not afraid of those who oppose us. It is an evidence to those who oppose us of their damnation and a confirmation of the salvation of those who are truly standing in Jesus Christ. And now it's from this point where Paul has exhorted them to unity amidst the opposition that he begins to explain how that unity comes about. He's first going to give the basis for that unity which all believers share, and then he's going to share how it is we are unified in the body of Christ. And for us, this is very important because the only way we will have unity in the church is as what we'll see in the scriptures today. And the only way we'll have unity between believers and families is what we see in the scriptures today. The only way we will have unity in the body of Christ. So with that in mind, again, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to read a little farther up here. But remember, uh, we're going to look at 1 and 2, but it's connected to what else I read here. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit... If there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's what we're going to look at today. But it goes on. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And when we get to that point, we'll see that although he is God, he took on human flesh and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The mindset of the Savior, which we are to have also, which as we will see, will bring about unity in the body of Christ. So with this in mind, today I believe we're going to see two things. We're going to see, first of all, the motivation for the true, for true believers in the, in the true believers, the body of Christ to, to be united as one. And then we're going to see what that unity looks like specifically. Now, first of all, we need to understand, uh, to maintain unity in the church, we need to understand this basis and the motive for unity. Look at verse one. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. 
Now, I've shared this passage before, but for some of you that may have not been here, this term if in the way it's structured in the sentence is, is assumed to be true. If there is, and, and it is, it's assumed to be true. Some translations translate it since, and that's a good translation also. But it's used in a sense to, to make us think about it. If there is, and there is, then do this. Then do this. You see, he's going to share some if statements here, or some things that are true about the body of Christ. If therefore any encouragement in Christ, one, if there's any consolation of love, two, any fellowship of the Spirit, three, any affection and compassion, four, and then there is the implied then. If this is true, and it is for you believers in Philippi, then this should be done. Then, it's implied, make my joy complete, Paul says, being of the same mind. If these things are true of you, believers, then this is what you should do. If this is true of you, this is what you should do. Now, it's important before we get to these four statements, which we'll focus on primarily today, that we see that this portion says in the beginning, if therefore, there is a, a Greek uh, uh, particle which speaks of, of, of connect, which connects what was said beforehand, uh, based on what Paul had shared before, that they should be standing firm, obviously, for the truth of the gospel. They should be walking in a manner worthy of that, standing firm, striving together, not alarmed by their opposition. They should be doing this in unity. Therefore, because you should be doing this in the midst of your opposition, therefore, if these things are true about you, do this. That's how it's connected together. And so he's saying, if these things are true, then make my joy complete. Now, the word complete speaks of being filled or fulfilled. Filled to the brim. Fulfill my joy. Fill it to the brim. Complete it. Make my joy complete. We'll look at that in a while, but Paul is speaking of, of the joy that comes from seeing God's people in unity walking rightly before the Lord. And if you are a true believer, it is a joyous thing to see uh, sinful human beings redeemed by the blood of Christ functioning differently than they did before they were saved in the context of unity and God's word working in their hearts together. It's a joy to see that, whether it's in the body of Christ, whether it's within a family, whatever it might be between believers, it is a joy to see. And he says, fill my joy up to the brim. The Apostle Paul, as we know, is very close to these Philippians, and they have been an encouragement to him. They have sent uh, Epaphroditus to him to find out how he's doing. They've sent gifts to him. They're following the Lord. They want to follow the Lord. They're not people who come to church and don't want to follow the Lord. These people want to follow the Lord. They're believers. They're believers, true believers, not fakers or make-believers. And Paul says to them, make my joy complete. Well, how is it going to be fulfilled? It's all about unity and like-mindedness, same thinking. Now, back in verse 1, he gives four reasons or the basis for, for why they should do this, why they f- should fulfill his joy by being united and having the same mindset. Four motivations that are common to every true believer. Remember, this letter is written to the Philippians who have trusted in Jesus Christ. They are saints. They've come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so he says here, There are four realities based on these benefits. That's how and why you should do what you should do in terms of unity. 
So here we have the first one. The first thing that true believers share together and understand that they share them together. Because the, quest, the statement is, if this is true and you know it is, yes it is, then do this. If this is true. And so as we look at these things, this will also be a test of your faith. When, these, when I share these four things, if these are not of you, you need to examine yourself. Am I really truly a believer? Have I really truly humbly trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation? Have I believed in him? Have I called upon the name of the Lord? Have I truly repented of my sins and trusted in him? Because these are common of those who have been born again, who are new creatures, new creations, who have the Spirit of God within them. So what's the first one? If there is any encouragement in Christ. Now what does he mean by the term encouragement? You know, as we look at it from an English language standpoint, we think of someone who comes over to encourage you, maybe make you feel better, right? Well, that's part of it, but I don't think that's all of it. I don't think this biblical encouragement is the same completely as we see in, in, in our culture. The term translated encouragement is paraclesis. It carries the basic meaning of calling someone to, some, to oneself. Please come here. Come to me. And for the purpose of sharing. Come to me and speak to me, in a sense. Paraclesis. Um, it's translated encouragement. It's translated consolation, comfort, exhortation. And it carries the sense of an appeal or an entreaty which results in encouragement, exhortation, comfort. An appeal that results in that. One uh, pastor writes... Paracaleo, paracaleo really, literally means a calling to one's side to help, and therefore an entreaty, passing on in the sense of an exhortation, and thence to a consolatory exhortation that embodies the call for help and the response to the call. You see, it's someone that has a need and is called alongside. Someone comes alongside to, to help someone, to help you. You see, when someone encourages you, as we'll see with the scripture, they are helping you. But you need to call them alongside. You need to be willing to have them come alongside. When someone exhorts you, they are helping you. They are coming alongside to speak truth to you to help you. And so he says here, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and yes, there is, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind. So what is this encouragement or comfort or exhortation in Christ? What is that? You see, because we can encourage us one another apart from Christ, can't we? Hey, good job, whatever it might be. You're looking great today. Wonderful day, isn't it? We can encourage one another with just words in a sense apart from Christ, can't we? So what is encouragement in Christ? Well, first of all, understanding this word paraclesis, or where we get, it's closely related to the word parakaleo, or parakletos, excuse me. Now, in John 14 to 16, we have the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who's called the helper, one who comes alongside to help, called alongside to help, speaks to us, in a sense, through the Word of God. We, we understand that as in times of this parakaleo. So how is it that the Holy Spirit comforts and comes alongside? Take a look at John chapter 14. Turn to the Gospel of John. So the Holy Spirit, called the paraclete, or the helper, or the comforter, same word, right? Now you understand, hopefully, why the same word could be translated helper or comforter, right? Because the help comes in the form of comfort 
uh, by exhortation or encouragement, right? John chapter 14, verse 26, on, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he made it clear that although he was going, he would send another helper, one of the same, one that would be just like him, the Holy Spirit. And he says in John 14, 26, but the helper, that's the paraclete, the paracletos, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. There's one thing that the, the helper does. He teaches us the truth of God and he brings to remembrance. Christ encourages us, right? Through his word, by his spirit. Go to chapter 15, 26. You can remember those, 14, 26 and 15, 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. If there is any encouragement or help, one who is called alongside in Christ, if there is, the Spirit of God does so, right? Go up a little farther, chapter 16, verse 7 in John. Jesus says to his disciples again, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, and he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So how does the comforter comfort? By revealing Christ through the word. By bringing forth the things of Christ. You see, God comforts us in Christ by bringing forth the truth concerning Christ in our lives. And now the Spirit also certainly convicts us. But the Spirit shall glorify Christ, so he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. By revealing Christ through the word, disclosing and teaching truth concerning Christ, ultimately glorifying Christ, we are comforted in our walk with Christ. You see, and every true believer is comforted by Christ, has been comforted through the truth concerning our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that comfort usually comes in the sense of actually having our hearts convicted that's why this word is translated exhortation often rather than just simply comfort. Exhortation. And when we are willing to receive God's exhortation to us as the Lord Jesus through his word by his spirit shows us where we're doing wrong, where we're thinking wrong, whatever it might be, we are comforted in those circumstances. When the Lord shows us the things of Christ concerning the difficulties confronting us, we are comforted in those difficulties. When the Lord Jesus focuses our hearts on him in the midst of deep trials, we are comforted. If there is any encouragement 
in Christ, and there is. Now, that encouragement doesn't come out of space and just a feeling that you get because you know Jesus. It comes through the Spirit of God by the Word of God. Turn to second, first, turn to first Thessalonians chapter two. We'll see that the Apostle Paul brought forth exhortation to these Thessalonians, and that exhortation was through the Word of God. If there is any exhortation in Christ. First Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel amid much opposition. For our exhortation, he talks about the word of God as an exhortation. For our exhortation uh, does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with greed, nor with a pretext for greed. God is was witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though that as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. You know, just as you know how we were exhorting, parakaleoing you, we were parakaleoing you and encouraging and imploring each one as a father with his own children so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. The Lord Jesus Christ, by his Spirit, encourages us. He exhorts us. If there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if you have been encouraged, exhorted by Christ through his word, which is a common reality for true believers, then, then, be of the same mind. Make my joy complete. Be of the same mind. Bob read part of this earlier. Turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. This encouragement comes through the scriptures. The Lord Jesus, by his spirit, speaks to us through his word. And for the true believer, it is a common reality for every true believer to have the Lord speaking into our hearts by his spirit through his word. That is a common reality. And it actually is not bouncing off our hardened hearts. It is a being, it is being affected. Our hearts are being affected because we've been changed. Romans chapter 15 verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. It's talking about the word of God. That through the perseverance and encouragement of what? The scriptures. We might have hope. Now may the God who gives what? Perseverance and encouragement. God is the one who gives us encouragement through the word of God. May he grant you to be of what? The same mind. Like-minded. 
like-minded. You see? So for believers, we have been exhorted. We were exhorted when we were first uh, convicted of the Word of God with the Gospel, that we were sinners in need of a Savior. And we have responded to that. If there is any encouragement or exhortation in Christ, and there is, if in Christ we have been convicted, reproved, exhorted, then make my joy complete by walking worthily, as we'll see, in a like-minded unity. Very clearly, Paul is reminding all of us believers as the, about our common experience in Christ. We see that. Now, folks, if you claim to be a believer in Christ and you've never experienced the exhortation of Christ through his word to you personally, I would question whether you know the Lord. It is assumed that this is the reality for every believer. If this is the case, and it is. You see, if you have a hardened, unredeemed, unregenerated heart, you are not going to respond. You will not respond to Christ's exhortation. But if Christ has saved you, it is common to believers to be encouraged by the Lord Jesus Christ through his word. Well, that's the first basis that we have for unity in a sense. Look at the second one. First of all, he says, if there's any consolation or excuse me, encouragement in Christ, then notice the second one. If there is any consolation of love, and there is. Consolation of love, that, what does that mean? Consolation of love. And there is. Well, this word consolation, paramuthion, we had the parakaleo, now we have paramuthion, um, speaks of coming alongside and speaking tenderly. Coming alongside and speaking tenderly. The other one was coming alongside and maybe admonishing, right? Or exhorting and then encouraging. This is coming alongside and speaking tenderly. If there is any coming alongside and speaking tenderly of love, he says here, then make his joy complete by being of the same mind. Now the term consolation is a good translation, but remember there is a tenderness and actually a persuasion to it. It carries the sense of persuasion. This tender consolation that persuades, that persuades. It speaks of another common experience for every believer if there is any tender, persuasive comfort, as we will see, flowing from his love for us, and there is, then be like-minded. You see, if you're a believer in Christ, you have experienced God's tender, persuasive consolation of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You've experienced that in your salvation. God's tender consolation of his love concerning what he did in Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Just the fact that God would love us so much that in why we get sinners, Christ would die for us, that he would give his son as a sacrifice, that he would love us so much, this, this persuades us tenderly, this love. 
persuades us. It controls us. The Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us. God's love for me changes my mindset towards my circumstances and other people. When I'm focused on him, allowing him to to function in my heart, I see what he has done for me. It changes my mindset. And if there's any consolation in love, see how great a love the Father has that we should be called children of God. Wretched sinners redeemed by the blood of Christ. Children of God. Tremendous, wonderful love. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And we see that in the forgiveness of sins, having taken our sins as far as the east is from the west. So great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. That should persuade us. A self-sacrificial love for us that is unconditional should persuade us. And if you're a true believer, it has. It has moved your heart to be tenderly consoled, persuaded, if you're a true believer. If there is any consolation in love, any consolation flowing from his love. You see, God's love should persuade us to obey him, to walk in unity. To If, there, if this is true, then, uh, may, says Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Think rightly. If this is true, think rightly, as we will say. If you're a believer, you have experienced the tender, persuasive comfort that flows from your loving Father who gave his Son. And we see that in the Word of God, and the Spirit of God illumines that in our hearts. And if that hasn't happened, maybe you don't know the Lord. It's a common reality for every true believer. And it should motivate us, as we will see, to obedience and like-mindedness. Now notice we have a third uh, reality that is common to all believers. If there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is any consolation of love, and there is, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit... Paul appeals to another reality for those who are truly in Christ. There is fellowship of the Spirit. The term fellowship here is a familiar Greek word, koinonia. speaks of sharing, uh, communion, or participation. And this fellowship of the Spirit has to do with participation or communion or sharing of the Holy Spirit. You see, that is, in, that is actually enjoyed by every true believer. And folks, if we have oneness, we have shared based on, we, we share based on the Holy Spirit. You see, when we believed in Jesus Christ, we were baptized into the body of Christ. We were placed into 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized. That means placed into or identified with, into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. When we believed in Jesus Christ, we were indwelt by the Spirit of God as a, as a pledge of what God would complete, the completion of, of the job of salvation. We have this in common. We share in the tremendous down payment and pledge of our glorification. We share in the very person of the Spirit of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We share in this. 
All believers have this commonality, and there is a fellowship within that. And when you are walking in Christ, we understand that fellowship. When we are walking by the Spirit, we understand it. You could meet someone in Timbuktu you've never met before who's a true believer, and you know that fellowship right away. You know they know Jesus. You know there's a, there's a changed heart. There's a fellowship of the Spirit of God. And all true believers have experienced this fellowship of the Spirit. So if you have participated or communion, had a communion in the context of the Holy Spirit that is enjoyed by every believer, then make my joy complete being of the same mind. If this is true of you, and it is, believers, and it is. And then notice there's a fourth uh, basis for his exhortation. If any affection and compassion... Here we have two different words, affection and compassion. The first word, affection, literally means bowels or internal organs. It was used at that time to speak of a, an internal tenderheartedness or affection. The term compassion speaks of compassionate mercy, actually. It is a display of concern over one's misfortune. It is of sympathy and mercy. It speaks of sympathy and mercy together. We see it in Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1, I urge you there by the compassionate mercies, it's a different word than mercy, compassionate mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice. Second Corinthians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, compassionate mercy, a, a compassion towards one's misfortune. We see that in Christ. Affection and compassion, usually, and now when these two words are brought together, it speaks of a tender-hearted mercy, a tender-hearted compassion. These two words are used together and translated this in Colossians 3.12, a heart of compassion. A heart of compassion. It is only the believer in Jesus Christ that has experienced uh, the tender-hearted mercies and compassion of, a, of the living God in Christ. It is only the believer in Jesus Christ who has experienced God's compassion, having looked upon our helpless state of sin and saved us from our sins. Tender-hearted. Turn to Luke chapter 1. We see this tender mercy in light of the coming Savior. This tender mercy. We've experienced that tender mercy. God is so good. He is so gracious. Luke chapter 1, verse 76 And this is the prophecy concerning, uh, initially, um, John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1, verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy, that's our word, the tender mercy of our God. God was tender and merciful towards us, compassionate, and he saved us by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And he says here back in our passage, if there is any affection and compassion, and yes, in Jesus Christ, it is abounding. It is abounding. If this is true of you, this is true of you, then, then, Make my joy complete, being of the same mind. If these truths are true of you, 
And my question to you would be, are these truths true of you? Are these true? If you have, cha- have been changed, I thought I was saved and I was not saved. I was living my own life, doing my own thing, and I went to church, did those things. I was not saved. And Jesus Christ, by his Spirit, convicted me of my sin. Choose this day whom you will serve. And I repented of my sin. I knew what it was. I knew I wasn't going the right way. I knew I wasn't following him. And he convicted me of sin. And I was changed. I was changed. This is speaking of changed people. True believers. True believers. Because if you try to have unity apart from this, it ain't going to happen, folks. You're just going to cause disunity and trouble, by the way. You need to be a believer. There's no way to have unity apart from being in the body of Christ and by in the context of the Spirit of God working within us. And guess what? This brings forth joy. He says, if these or those things are true, back in our passage, if therefore there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Make my joy complete. You see, the Apostle Paul was like John. John said, I have no greater joy than seeing my children walking in the truth. The Apostle Paul is saying, you want to make me happy? You want to fill my joy to the top? Then be same-minded in Christ. Think the same way as we're going to see. Being of the same mind. And that only happens if you are truly uh, partic- have participated in these things that are common to all believers. So then our motivation for unity comes from the truths that permeate our lives and apply to each and every one of us. And they have to do with what Christ has done for us and the unity we have by his spirit. So do you know Jesus? Do you share in these benefits that permeate the life of a true believer? Are you convicted by the word, persuaded by his love, have fellowship in his spirit, have experienced his tender-hearted compassion by the forgiveness of sins? If not, you can. You can if you're willing to humble yourself. If you're willing to humble yourself and turn to Christ. I am not this way. I haven't experienced it. I am not saved, Lord God. I am not a believer. Save me. Save me. Save me from my sins. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So then Paul's appeal for unity begins in a focus on the relationship with the living God and the benefits of the relationship that apply to all believers. These are commonalities of all true believers. And then we have a command. This is the second way we can maintain unity. First, we need to understand the basis for unity. Secondly, we need to understand what this command is, what it actually looks like, what the mindset of true unity looks like, what the thinking in our hearts is that brings about true unity. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the Spirit, intent on one purpose. Make my joy complete is, is, the, is the command. Make my joy complete. But it's, this is a difficult portion to interpret because it literally goes like this. Make my joy complete in order that you might have the same mind. Well, the grammatical people, the Greek guys, they say basically the second portion carries the the force of a command. That's why it's translated by being. Make my joy complete by being same-minded. The command is to be same-minded. 
which will bring forth Paul's joy. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. What does that mean? The term being minded, phreneo, speaks of thinking, to think. It speaks of holding an opinion, having thoughts, an attitude. It's about thinking. You see, you are phreneoing right now. You're thinking something. It's your thoughts. It's your mindset. It's what's in your mind, what you're thinking. And true unity comes when we think the same thing. You say, wait a second, how can we think the same thing? Well, as we're going to see, true unity is not a group of pastors meeting together, compromising their faith so that they can get along. Right? It's not a denomination. It's not a creed. It's not a potluck. It's not a program. It is same-mindedness in the lives of true believers. Same-mindedness in the lives of true believers. So he says, fill my joy to the brim by being same-minded. Now it's important to realize that we're going to see that uh, verse 5 gives us the answer ultimately how we can be same-minded. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Now it's unfortunate that within a couple of verses this word phrenea was translated three different ways. It's translated mind and purpose in verse 2 and attitude in verse 5. It's the same word. When you say have this attitude, that means have this thinking. And we understand that. That's an attitude, right? If someone has an attitude, you know, they're thinking in a certain way, right? Right? And so here he says, have this mind. And so what I'm saying is we'll see it is only when we have the mind of Christ that we are like-minded. It's when we think like Christ that we will have unity. We will have unity. And you ask, how is it that we who are so different in so many ways can think the same? How can that be? We are so different, and it is so obvious every day, right? How is it that we can think the same way? We'll turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This gives us part of the answer. The Apostle Paul is addressing the pride of the Corinthians. They're boasting. They're boasting in people. They're boasting in all kinds of stuff. First three chapters are, are ripping that apart, shredding that down, that we would boast in God alone. And so the Apostle Paul is going to give them a testimony of how he came to them so they wouldn't boast in him, but they would boast in the Lord. You see? So he's going to give a testimony. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or with wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to you know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not a persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Every seminary that I have, this is their preaching class text, by the way. He says there, It was of the Spirit and power that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. But then he says, yet we do speak wisdom. We do speak something. He says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature or complete. Those are believers that are grown up. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak what? God's wisdom. Paul brought forth the word of God. It was God's wisdom. And he says there, in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory 
the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, the things which I have not seen or ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, believers, he has revealed them, that's God's wisdom, the context of the word, through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts? See, it's the thoughts of a man, except the spirit of a man, which is in him. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. God gives us his truth, his very word, and we've received his spirit that we might freely know these things. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But the natural man, that's a non-believer, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. But they are spiritually, but they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have part of God's thinking. We have God's thoughts brought forth in words. And we can think the way God thinks in that level, in a sense. We can have the mind of Christ. The mind that considers others is more important than themselves. The mind that desires to obey, we saw that was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The mind desires to glorify, as we saw in what Christ did to glorify the Father. We have the mind of Christ, and it's in the Word of God. How can we who are so different think the same things? We renew our minds with the mind of Christ, with the truth concerning uh, Christ through the Word. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, very clearly, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't think like the world thinks, but be renewed. You've got to renew your mind. We know it's the encouragement of the scriptures that we might have hope, and God gives that. We are to set our minds on the things above, not the things of earth. For we have died and our life is hidden with Christ, Right? And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, we'll be revealed with him in glory. Colossians 3, chapter 1. The Apostle Paul goes so far to say in Romans chapter 8 that uh, those who don't think uh, from above, in a sense, who don't have a renewed mind, aren't saved. If your thinking isn't changed, something is wrong. We'll read that in a little bit. So to be like-minded, we must have God's truth ruling and reigning our thoughts. So how do we have unity? We have unity by thinking the way Christ thinks in every situation, by allowing his word to, to conform our hearts. If I'm tempted to be angry, God's word addresses that. If I'm tempted to speak wrongly of someone, God's word addresses that. It changes my mind about that. If I fail, God's word shows me the, the complete forgiveness I have in Christ if I confess my sin and forsake it. Christ shares his truth to us, and when we think the same way, we will have unity.
unity. And there'll be joy in that. Plain and simple, biblical unity is based on a true understanding and submission to the Word of God and the God of the Word. That's, that's it. When my heart is submitted to the truth of God, some people are in the truth of God all day long, but they won't submit to it. They won't submit to it. You've got to let your heart be humbled. And that's why it's so important that we must preach the Word, because if we don't, we will never attain the unity of the faith together. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. So if you're not being fed the Word of God, now you've got to receive it too. Some people are being fed the Word of God, they're not receiving it, okay? But you've got to receive it also. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, and here's the goal, to the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. God's word brings us together in our thinking if we humbly accept it. You know, what grieves me the most is when I talk to people or I hear people talking to people where they've got issues of sin and they're not willing to just take God's word at its word and confess their attitudes and just confess it. I am wrong. I'm wrong. Lord, you are right. You know, we need to have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. You see, it's when that happens, when the Word of God is, is functioning in our hearts, we're going to have unity. But yet, in contrast, when it is lessened or not taught or not received or understood, I guarantee there is not true unity. When we true believers are thinking biblically, humbly, receiving the Word, when the Word of God is dwelling richly in the heart of true believers, when believers set their mind on the things above as revealed in the Word, when we submit our hearts to God through His Word, when we have the mind of Christ, there is unity. There is unity. You don't have to manufacture it. You don't have to seek it. You don't need to fight for it. You just need to think the same thing as revealed in the Word. Think the same thing. The defining mark of true unity is a like-mindedness. So we go back to our passage Make my joy complete by continually, habitually being of the same mind. And we're commanded to maintain it. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. We're to, we're to walk in a manner where we're to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Be diligent. Be diligent not to let uh, your thoughts go away from the truth of God and His mindset that He has revealed for us in His Word. Be diligent not to let it happen. So then, we see that we are to have the mind of Christ to be like-minded. But what does that look like? Now, in our time remaining, we're going to see, well, now we're going to see all of it, but there's going to be in the next verses, in verses uh, 3 through, excuse me, in verses 2 through 4, which is 2 and a half through 4, there are five things that reveal characteristics of what true unity looks like. And with our time left, we're just going to briefly look at three of them today, and we'll look at the other two next week, then we'll look at the basis as we look at Christ. So we're just going to touch on those first three of what it looks like, and then we'll review them next week and see the ultimate uh, picture of unity, the mind of Christ. 
So let's take a look at verses uh, 2 through 4. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. That's the main verb. Okay? And now we have some participles. We have four participles and one adjective. Now what does that mean? They're all describing what making his joy complete by being of the same mind looks like. Make my joy complete being of the same mind doing these things. Doing these five things. And so we're going to look at the first three. And I'll, give, I'll read all five of them first of all. Maintaining the same love. That's the first one. United in spirit. That's the second one. Intent on one purpose. That's the third one. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. That's the fourth one. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. There's the fifth one. But for the interests of others. Those are all statements that do not in the Greek language, stand alone. They are connected back to what we just studied. So let's briefly look at the first three here as we finish up here, and we'll see them in more detail next week. So what does this same-mindedness look like in a practical reality? What does it look like? He says, first of all, maintaining the same love. Now, the Greek text literally says, having the same love. Maintaining is not a good translation. Having the same love. Holding or having on to. Holding on to the same love. He says all kinds of different love out there, right? It's a lot of ungodly love. Paul says, let love not uh, be with hypocrisy, right? That's not real love, right? It's not biblical love. But he says here, having the same love. You see, when we are same-minded, we will love the same things. See, when I'm selfish, I love myself, and I love my will and my desires. But when I am yielded to Christ, when the mind of Christ, I'm going to love the things of Christ. I'm going to have the same love as you do if you're yielded to Christ. We're going to love Christ. We're going to love his truth. We're going to love one another. And we're going to have the same love. To truly have the mind of Christ implies that the love of Christ is manifest in us also. You see, if I'm thinking like Christ, then I'm going to love the Word of God. If I'm thinking like Christ, I'm going to love the Lord. If I'm thinking like Christ, I'm going to love you. Having the same love. So if I'm not loving the Lord, loving His Word, and loving you, then maybe I'm not thinking like Christ. You see? It's what it looks like. It's what it looks like. My question would be, do you love Christ? Do you love his word? Do you love his people? Do you love it? Are they more important to you than yourself? Self is pretty important, right? It's pretty important. But the Lord Jesus enables us by his word, changing our hearts to die to ourselves. And that's where we have true joy when we are focused on Christ and serving his body in whatever capacity. Loving one another. Well, briefly, what's the second one? I believe it speaks of being in full agreement. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, having the same love. You should have that, right? And then he says, united in spirit. And that's not the best translation here. Excuse me. Yeah, united in spirit. I don't think it's the best translation. It, it comes from the word basically, sun sukos. That we have our word suke, which is the soul, and soon with, or like, or with soul, together. 
Now, this spoke of being in full agreement in our, on the level of our soul. Then the soul, that's our emotions, our reason, our will, our very being. Uh, back in chapter 1, verse 27, we saw it with one mind. It was actually with one soul striving together. With one soul. It speaks of being one soul together. The idea of being in full agreement. In full agreement. On the soul level. And folks, without full agreement, there is no same-mindedness. You see, if we don't have full agreement concerning the things of Christ revealed in the Word, there is no same-mindedness. It is the Spirit of God that brings that agreement and brings that unity. And briefly and lastly, the third one out of five, which we'll see today, intent on one purpose. Now, what's really interesting is this, this term, uh, intent on one... Let me make sure I got the right portion here. Maintain this love, love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. The term purpose is actually the word for nail again. Mind. Same word. You could literally translate this term intent on one purpose. I think it's a much better translation. Thinking the one thing. You have the word mind, and then it's modified by the word one. One thinking. And so it's intent on one thing. Thinking the one thing. A singular focus that we should have together. A singular focus. He's saying that true unity has a unity of thought. Not that all our thoughts are the same, but all our thoughts are in subjection to the God of the Word and and to the Word and to the God of the Word. We see this in Romans chapter 8. I mentioned this earlier. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 5. And again, these these are... manifestations of us of a same mindedness for those who are according to the flesh romans 8 5 set their minds on the things of the flesh that's where their mind that's where your thinking is but those according to the spirit the things of the spirit that's the truth of god and how it relates to our everyday life right he says here for the mindset on the flesh is what death but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards god for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even, even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Thinking the same thoughts. We believers are the only ones that can do that because we have the Spirit of God. Thinking the one thing, the one thing. I'm out of time, but you'll remember what uh, Paul, not Paul, but the Lord Jesus and Luke shared to Martha, who was busy with her preparations, and Mary had sat down in front of the Lord Jesus and was listening to his teaching. And the Lord Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one Only one. For Mary has chosen the good part. You see, there's really only one thing we need to be focused on. Christ. You see? And when we do so, he enables us to think rightly about everything else. Thinking the one thing. Same-mindedness. So what does true unity look like? Is it a denomination, a creed, a potluck, a program? 
No, it's the mind of Christ manifest in true believers. And that will be what we see as we'll see unity. True unity only exists when God's truth, the mind of Christ is manifest, and we'll manifest the same love, full agreement, and a singular focus. So how can we have unity in the church? First of all, you've got to be saved. There's no unity if you don't know Christ. And I've mentioned those things, those things which were the basis. Being convicted by the word, being, having the Lord exhort you, the exhortation of Christ, persuaded by his love for you. Fellowship of the Spirit, having experienced his tenderhearted compassion for the forgiveness of sins. If you haven't experienced that, there's never going to be unity. And maybe you don't know the Lord, but God is gracious. You can turn to him today and experience those things in the context of forgiveness of sins. And what about us as believers? We need to recognize it's only when we have the mind of Christ, when we are allowing our heart and our thoughts to be conformed to what he wants us to think about every circumstance, every person, then that's when we're going to have unity in the body of Christ, with other believers, in every situation where it has to do with the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. It does convict us, and it corrects us, and it trains us. And Lord, I thank you that it's not a mystery how we can be of the same mind. I thank you for those of us here who are true believers that we have experienced uh, the exhortation that comes by your Son through his word that we have experienced the the tremendous, wonderful uh, love. We've been persuaded by it. That we have shared and participated in the Spirit of God and that fellowship that we have one one another and together. And that we experienced your tender, compassionate mercies that you brought forth in sending your Son to die for us. Thank you. Father, may we now... uh, be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Father, that we would do nothing for ourselves, but out of love for you and one another. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.